Saints for Home and School by Thomas S. Milady. 1. St. Francis of Assisi, 1182-1226 The Little Poor Man, Feast Day, October 4th After supper, Mr. McCabe was seated in his easy chair reading the paper. Here's an interesting piece of news, he said. What is it, Dad? asked Jack. On April 2nd, Mr. McCabe read, His Holiness, Pope Pius XI, will press a button, thus sending out a signal from the Vatican radio station to a receiving set on a mountain known as La Verna. This will complete a circuit and light the electric lamps on an iron cross almost 40 feet high, erected on a mountain by the Franciscan friars in honor of their founder, St. Francis of Assisi. After that, the cross will shine every night over the surrounding valleys. Tell me about St. Francis of Assisi, Dad, answered Jack. I'm not sure I know the story well enough, replied Mr. McCabe, but I have a book upstairs which will help me to give you the main points of his life. I know the book, replied Jack. Just a moment, Father, and I'll go get it. When Jack returned, his father began the story. This most Italian of saints and saintliest of Italians, as Pope Pius XI calls him, was born at Assisium, about a hundred miles north of Rome, in the year 1182. His parents owned considerable property. His father was a merchant who bought and sold cloth. At an early age, Francis learned to speak French because of the business his father had with several French merchants. In his early years, the boy was very fond of sports, games, and other amusements, but did not spend too much of his time at play. He would never refuse an alm of any poor man who asked it for the love of God. He was faithful to his rule to this very day of his death. One of his outstanding virtues was patience. During a war between two cities, he was captured and kept in prison for a whole year. He suffered joyfully all of this. He was very patient, also during a long sickness, and although his body was weakened, his soul grew in strength. When he was able to, to be out after his illness, he met on the road a gentleman who had lost all his property and was too poor to buy himself proper clothing. Francis felt very sorry for him and traded his new suit of clothes for the poor garments the gentleman was wearing. God seemed to bless this act of charity, for the next night Francis had a dream in which he saw a wonderful palace filled with suits of armor, all marked with a sign of the cross. A voice in the dream told him this armor was for him and his soldiers if they would band together and fight with courage. One day he had a vision in which he saw our Lord hanging upon a cross. Ever afterwards, when he thought of the sufferings of Christ, he shed many tears, and his charity as well as his spirit of poverty increased very much. He often visited the hospitals and served the sick. He was not even afraid to wait on lepers. When one serves the poor, he serves Christ himself, St. Francis used to say. When he was twenty-five years of age, the saint said to his father, let us go to a lawyer, so that I may sign over to you my share of your business. Up to now I have called you Father on earth, but henceforth I say, Our Father, who art in heaven, 
and in him I shall place all my hope and treasure. After that, St. Francis was to be found walking along the highways or through the streets of the town singing the praises of God. On one of these journeys he met a band of robbers who said to him, Who are you? Francis replied, I am the herald of the great king. They laughed and jeered at him and threw him into a ditch. Instead of becoming angry, he rejoiced at having had this opportunity of suffering and continued to sing even more joyfully than before. Even his relatives, his father, his brother, and all his friends laughed at him and treated him as if he were a fool. With great joy, Francis bore all their laughter. He knew this was a good way of doing penance, because to be laughed at is really a great suffering. Francis next repaired three churches. In the year 1207, he made his home near one called the Portununcula, which belonged to the Benedictine monks of Subiaco. One day, during Mass, in this church he heard the priest read from the Gospel, Do not possess gold, nor silver, nor money in your purses, nor script for your journey, nor two coats, nor shoes, nor staff, for the workman is worthy of his meat. The saint, applying these words to himself, gave away his money, his shoes, his staff, and his girdle, and kept but one poor coat over which he tied about him with a cord. This was a short cloak over the shoulders of a hood for the head, later became the Franciscan habit. Francis was soon joined by a large number of men who were attracted to him by his great virtue. Even rich and well-educated men gave away all their goods and embraced poverty with him. To his companions he said, Do not be afraid of being despised by men, or to be called fools and madmen. Put your trust in him who overcame the world by humility. When Francis applied to Pope Innocent III for approval of his order, he did not at first obtain permission. But when the Holy Father had a vision in which he saw St. Francis holding up the Lateran Church in Rome, he sent for him, approved his rule, and ordained his deacon. St. Francis made it a rule that his order should not own any property, not even the house in which they lived. Poverty, he said, is the way to heaven, the nurse of humility, and the root of perfection. Even the houses in which the monks lived were not to be expensive. The saint had a very pleasant and charitable way of looking at people and things. He called all creatures his brothers and sisters. He used to speak a brother fish, brother donkey, sister frog, the sun was brother sun, and the moon sister moon. Even for the weather he had such names as brother frost, sister snow, sister rain, and brother wind. He was very fond of the birds, Whole flocks of them would come and sit quietly near him while he spoke to them. Even the fish would come to the surface of the water to hear his words. All things in the world were his brothers and sisters, because they were all creatures by the same God. In doing penance he was very severe with himself. He wore rough garments because, he said, devils easily tempt those who wear soft clothes. His bed was usually the ground, and his pillow was often a piece of wood or a stone. He kept eight lints every year. Yet this saint was much opposed to foolish penances. One of the brothers, because he did not eat enough, 
was not able to sleep. Francis brought him some bread and said to make it easy for him, help him to eat. Very often he called himself the greatest of sinners. He had such a wonderful knowledge of the goodness of God that he really believed himself to be worth nothing. If God had given the greatest sinner the favors he has given me, he would have been more grateful than I am. And if he had left me to myself, I should have committed greater sins than all other sinners. He was favored by many wonderful visions, and was often raised from the ground during prayer. In the greatest vision of all, he received the marks of the five wounds of Christ, in his hands and in his side and in his feet. These he carried until the day of his death. Blood often came from these wounds, and he suffered a great deal. As St. Francis received his vision of Mount Laverna, the place has ever since been called the Holy Mountain. On one occasion, Francis went to Palestine, where the crusaders were fighting the Saracens. Without any fear, he went into the Saracen camp and tried to convert the sultan and his army. They were very much pleased by the holy words he spoke to them, and he would have succeeded in converting them to the faith of the if the sultan had not been afraid that his men would join the Christian armies. St. Francis was also responsible for starting a community of holy women known as Poor Clares. He assisted St. Clare of Assisi and her companions to found their order, which, like the Franciscans, kept a very strict vow of poverty. The Feast of St. Clare is kept by the church on August 12th. In the year 1225, St. Francis became very sick, his brothers in the order put him in charge of the best doctors they could find. In spite of the care which they gave him, he suffered great pain. When someone suggested to him that he ask God to lessen his pain, he answered, O Lord, I return these thanks for the pains which I suffer. I will suffer more if it be thy holy will. Shortly before his death, he told his brothers to lay him on the ground and cover him with an old habit. In this position he died on the 4th of October in the year 1226. Numerous miracles took place when the holy remains were being buried. He was canonized by Gregory the Ninth in the year 1228. It's a very interesting story, Dad, said Jack. But does God expect us to give up all our goods and be poor like St. Francis? No, son, answered Mr. McCabe. Very few people are called upon to make great sacrifices like St. Francis made, but everyone can have the spirit of poverty, which means that one should be ready to give up the things of this world at any time if God should ask such a sacrifice. St. Teresa of Avila, 1515-1582 Saint of the Flaming Heart, Feast Day, October 15th St. Teresa of Avila is perhaps the greatest woman writer in the history of the world, her book, The Castle of the Soul, or Interior Castles, is a great piece of literature. She is a doctor of the church, this being the glorious title given her by Pope Gregory the Fifteenth and Urban the Seventh. Most of her writings, collected by order of Philip the Second, King of Spain, are now in the great Escorial Library of Madrid, where they may still be seen. Indeed, says Dr. Thomas O'Hagan, Canadian poet and author of The Saint of the Flaming Heart, ranks as a very 
miracle of genius, and is perhaps the greatest woman who ever wielded a pin, and the only one of her sex who stands beside the world's most perfect masters. She it was, continued Dr. O'Hagan, who wrote at the age of sixty-two her greatest work, The Castle of the Soul, when she seemed to have snatched from the very bosom of God all the secrets of contemplative life. Do we wonder, then, says the same author, that Catholic Spain has pla placed her manuscript of her own life beside the pages of St. Augustine's writings in the palace of the Escorial? The saint of the flaming heart was born at Avila, about fifty miles northwest of Madrid, Spain, on March twenty eighth, fifteen fifteen. She was the daughter of the noble parents, who gave her an excellent education, the principal lesson of which was that a life well lived in this world leads to an eternity of happiness. Perhaps when she was a little girl, her parents sometimes took her with them through the streets of Avila. We can imagine with what pleasure she looked at the creaking ox-carts drawn by the slow-moving oxen, or when what interest she saw the peasants walking beside the donkeys heavily laden with produce from the farm. Sometime, indeed, she may have visited the humble home of some peasant family, where she would see men and women harvesting their crops of barley. She might have seen a shepherd tending his flock, or sheep on the hillside, and we can imagine the joy of her childish heart when she noticed the little white lambs, which called to her mind the Lamb of God, she had so often seen in pictures at home. When she was only seven years of age, she and her little brother enjoyed stories from the lives of the saints. Frequently they heard about the Moors in Africa, who made a habit of putting Christians to death wishing to become martyrs and go to heaven, the little children one day stole out of their father's house to set out for Africa. When they reached the edge of the city, their uncle met them and took them home, much to the relief of their good mother, who had sent servants all over the city looking for them. One of their favorite games was playing hermit in their father's garden. They used stones to build cells for themselves. But they did not have very good luck at this pastime, for the stones persisted in falling down. Her mother died about the year 1528. Her father then placed her in the convent of the Augustinian nuns. She did not care for the convent life at first, and had no great desire to be a nun. Five years later, however, she decided that it was no harder to be a nun than to spend a long time in purgatory, so she joined the Carmelite order. Soon she was favored with visions from the Lord. Some of her friends made fun of her on this account, thinking that the visions were only dreams, or else that there was something wrong with Teresa's mind. Thus she had to undergo what is perhaps the greatest penance, that of being held up to ridicule by others. Yet people sought her company. She had very winning ways, and was most pleasant and agreeable to everyone she met. Our Lord inspired her during the visions to form a new branch of the Carmelite order. This command she carried out in 1562, and moved with a number of companions to a new house. The blessing of God upon her work was signif 
was signified by a wonderful miracle. One day, a piece of rock from a building fell upon her little nephew and killed him. The child lay dead for several hours. In great distress, the father carried his boy to Teresa's room. She took the child into her arms and covered him with her mantle. The boy came back to life. From St. Teresa's new order, known as the Reformed Carmelites, there came, more than three hundred years later, another St. Teresa, now known to the whole world as the Little Flower. After the opening of her new house in 1562, St. Teresa lived in it for twenty years. Her life was one continual exercise of charity to her companions and to her neighbors. During these times also she wrote down the glorious revelations which our Lord made to her in numerous visions. She came as close as any mortal can to a description of the tremendous love God has for man. People even today read her writings and feel inspired by them to greater and greater devotion. Everything she wrote bears the mark of good balance and common sense. This can be realized in the following sentence, quoted from her works. The best prayer, and which is most pleasing to God, is that which brings on improvement, showing itself in good works, and not in enjoyment, which serves only for our own satisfaction. Through such words of wisdom and holy teaching, she succeeded in converting to the true faith thousands of souls. On October 4, 1582, our Lord favored her with a final vision as she lay on her bed of sickness. He appeared to her, accompanied by many saints. She begged him to free her from the prison of her body and to take her to heaven, where she might enjoy his glorious presence for all eternity. She had scarcely finished her prayer when her soul took its flight and she went to her heavenly home. So passed St. Teresa, the greatest daughter of Spain. The following are some quotations from the writings of St. Teresa of Avila. If obedience employs you to outward things, be not discouraged. Know that if you are in the kitchen and our Lord moves amidst the pots and pans helping you both within and without. Look upon yourself as the servant of all, see Christ in others, and you will show them respect and reverence. Accustom yourself to make frequent acts of love, which inflame and melt the soul. Sometimes I have such a vehement longing for communion, I do not think it can be expressed. One morning it happened to rain so much as to make it impossible to leave the house. When I had gone out, I was so beside myself with the longing that its spears had been pointed at my heart, I would have rushed upon them. The rain was nothing. Prayer is the door to the great graces. If this door is shut, I do not know how God can, can bestow them. I read in some book that if we leave God when he seeks us, when we seek him, we shall not find him. O my soul, let nothing trouble thee, let nothing affright thee. All things pass away. God never changes. Patience obtains everything. God alone suffices. St. Margaret Mary, 1647-1690 to Pearl of the Sacred Heart, Feast October 17th 
It was a beautiful Sunday morning in June. Next Friday will be the Feast of the Sacred Heart, Father McGivney said during the announcements. Come to Mass and Holy Communion that day. This feast, my dear people, was commanded by our Lord himself in one of his visions to St. Margaret Mary. On the way home after Mass, Father McAllister asked, Mother, who was St. Margaret Mary? I heard Father McGivney speak of her this morning. She was a simple visitation sister who lived in a convent. In France, replied Mrs. McAllister. Visitation sisters, did you say, Mother? I never heard of them. That's strange. Don't you know the story of St. Francis de Sales? He helped St. Jane Francis de Chantal to start the Order of the Visitations. Oh, yes, now I remember. St. Francis de Sales was Bishop of Geneva. Yes, Arthur. The, con the first convent of the Visitation Sisters was at Lyons, France. Later they founded another house at Père Le Monil, on the L'Oreal River, about 65 miles northwest of Lyons. St. Margaret Mary became the bright star of the new convent. She is often called the Pearl of Père, because our Lord made her a precious jewel of dazzling brightness. How did he do it, Mother? First of all, Arthur, our Lord gave her good parents. She was born in 1647 in the province of Bur Burgundy, France. At an early age, she learned to love the Blessed Sacrament. She made her first Holy Communion when she was nine. Soon after that, she was struck down by infantile paralysis, that dangerous disease of childhood, and was a cripple for four long years. Did she get better? asked Arthur. Yes, replied Mrs. McAllister, as she was suddenly cured after she prayed to the Blessed Virgin and promised to become a nun. And so she joined the visitation order? asked Arthur. Not right away. She had to undergo troubles and trials first. No one ever became holy without working for it. Her father died and left her family poor. When she was seventeen, her mother wanted her to get married. Margaret was tempted to think that she was not required to keep her promise to become a nun. She therefore went to some parties and dances. One night, when she came home, our Lord appeared to her just as he was after he was scourged, and told her he was not pleased with her. What did Margaret do then, mother? She went at once, Arthur, to the convent of Père la Moniel. That was on May twenty fifth, sixteen seventy one. Tell me of her life as a sister, said Arthur. Well, my boy, to the rest of the sisters she appeared somewhat dull. When she was sent to wash the dishes, she broke some of them. If it was her turn to sweep the rooms, she often left dust and cobwebs behind. Her companions began to think she was a little funny in the head. Why did she act like that? Arthur inquired. She wasn't really stupid, was she? Oh, no, but she was very much in love with her divine Lord, who had favored her with visions of the sacred heart. Thou drawest me altogether to thyself, she said to Jesus one day, and I cannot do things like others. But the other sisters did not know of these visions, and therefore did not trust her. This distrust was a cause of great suffering to Margaret, it was a joyful suffering, however, because she knew how precious pain is when it is borne patiently 
to for the love of Christ. When did Jesus show her the vision, mother? The first great vision occurred in 1673. At that time, our Lord allowed her to rest in the sacred heart. She felt swallowed up in a great ocean of love. She saw the most delightful beauty, inhaled delicious perfumes, and heard the sweetness of music. Our Lord spoke to her and said, Behold the heart, which has loved man so much. Through you my divine heart wishes to spread its love everywhere on earth. What did she see in the second vision? She saw the sacred heart on a beautiful throne of fire and flame. It was brighter than the sun, and sent out its rays in all directions. The divine heart was surrounded by a crown of thorns. A cross rested upon it. The wound received at the crucifixion could be seen. Our Lord explained to St. Margaret that the greatest love of his heart for man made him endure the pains of the thorns and of his wounds on the cross. Arthur put his fingers in one of his vest pockets. He brought out a piece of cloth and looked at it. This is the Sacred Heart badge, he said. Isn't this what St. Margaret saw in the vision, mother? See, here are the thorns and the cross and the wounds and the flames of fire. That's it, to be sure, answered Mrs. McAllister. And the heart is as red as those lovely roses we see in Mr. Ashkin's garden over there. No wonder June, with its red roses, is the month of the Sacred Heart. Is that why there were red roses on the altar this morning, mother? Yes, the rose is the symbol of love, Arthur. Do you know that the in honor of the Sacred Heart, Mr. Ashkin often gives some of his best roses to decorate the altar? A good idea, Mother. Mr. Ashkin also has a picture of the Sacred Heart in his house. He knows, Arthur, that our Lord promised great blessings to all those who would place this picture in their houses and honor it. St. Margaret Mary learned this in the second great vision. What was the third vision like, Mother? Our Lord appeared, his five wounds shining more brightly than the sun, and his breast resembled a great furnace, in which his sacred heart glowed with burning love for men. He told her that the coldest of human beings gives him greater pain than the sufferings of his passion. He asked St. Margaret to atone for the sin by keeping the holy hour on Thursday night and by receiving Holy Communion on the first Friday of each month. And when did our Lord tell her to have the Feast of the Sacred Heart established? asked Arthur. That was during the fourth great vision, replied Mrs. McAllister. On the Feast of the Sacred Heart, people are asked to receive Holy Communion to atone for the insults offered to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. Who helped St. Margaret Mary to spread this devotion? Arthur asked. One who helped a great deal was a holy priest, Father Claude de la Colombre. Through his influence, several people of high rank begged the Pope to establish the Feast of the Sacred Heart. The request, however, was not granted until 1765, nearly a hundred years later. In 1856, Pope Pius IX extended the feast to the whole world. Well, here we are at home again, mother. Thanks for the story, said Arthur. You're welcome, son, replied Mrs. McAllister. Oh, look at those red roses near the veranda. 
The warm sunshine has just coaxed them out.